anti-Semitism is a uh, disease, it's a virus, to use the current term, that has infected humanity uh, from the beginning of time till today, with rare exceptions. We say in the Haggadah, Shebachol dor v'dor omdim aleinu meaning that in every generation it arises, but it may arise in different forms, just as viruses can morph and change from year to year or from generation to generation. Uh, so too is that true regarding uh, this uh, virus of anti-Semitism. So tonight's lecture deals with anti-Semitism in the classical age, in the ancient world, uh, till, uh, really till Christianity, uh, till the rise of Christianity in the West and the rise of Islam in the East. Now, originally, one of the great ideas that one has to inculcate and understand is that the world was pagan. Pagan meant that everybody had their own God and that uh, everyone recognized that there were, so to speak, many gods. So if uh, one country believed that there were 30 gods, it was completely possible to say that there's a 31st god as well because uh, why should we limit it? And because of that, even though uh, uh, gods were exclusive to certain countries, uh, the Egyptians had their pantheon of gods, the Babylonians had theirs, uh, we will see later the Romans and the Greeks, but to a great extent, all of them were similar in nature. There was, so to speak, a uh, chief god, whether we call him Zeus or Jupiter or whatever the uh, Ra, whatever the Egyptians and Babylonians called their gods. And uh, then there were uh, plenty of minor gods that took care of, so to speak, all the little things in the world and were personal to the people. Because of the fact that life is mysterious and unexpected and unpredictable and often capricious, so uh, a lot of things don't make sense. I think we are all aware of that right now. A lot of things simply, if I would have told you four months ago, that uh, the economy of the world is in tatters, you would have said that, uh, you know, what does a rabbi know about money? But we are living through these uh, vagaries of life. Because of that, and because of the unknown forces, the partner to paganism was superstition the belief in magical potions, the belief in the fact uh, that there are all sorts of unseen enemies that exist and that we can do something to counteract them. What that something was were forms of worship, sometimes even forms of worship that cost the lives of human beings the Aztecs and the Incas in South America sacrificed their own children to appease the gods. And one of the ideas of paganism was that the gods behaved like human beings, and not only like human beings, like bad human beings. They had all the evil instincts that human beings have, but since they were gods, they could get away with it. And therefore, they were murderers, adulterers, robbers, evil people, cruel. That was the picture of godliness. In such a world, so it is no uh, uh, question that uh, it was very depressing. 
it was a, a pessimistic world. It was a world that had little or no hope for improvement. Into this world uh, was thrust our father Abraham, who uh, developed and promulgated the idea of monotheism, that there's only one God, and that everything else is nonsense, and also the fact that God, so to speak, is benevolent, and that even though harmful things occur in the world, it is within our power to improve the world by serving this benevolent God. Abraham was viewed as a threat because of the fact that he is a challenge to the existing idea, to the existing order. Uh, all the kings, all the emperors were based upon paganism, upon the gods, and whose right to assert themselves as rulers was based upon paganism. And therefore we have uh, the famous Jewish tradition that Abraham is thrown into the fire, to the Ur of Kasdim, uh, as in order to eradicate this radical idea of monotheism. Abraham escapes, and he preaches this idea for the rest of his life. According to Rabbeinu Menachem Amiri, in his introduction to Pirkei Avot, uh, he states that Abraham was very successful and that uh, about half of the world came to believe uh, in his ideas of monotheism and theism. The tradition of monotheism is then passed on through Abraham's son Isaac and through his grandson Jacob, through the 12 tribes that form the Jewish people. So here you have, for the first time, an entire people uh, that is swimming upstream, that, so to speak, denies everything that society says is true and everything that the rulers say is correct and have their own platform, their own ideas, their own worldview, their own understanding of what the world really is and what the purpose of human beings in the world really is because that's the basic question what are we doing here the Messiah Yashorim begins his uh, immortal treatise and the Messiah Yashorim begins what are we doing here what, what are we supposed to do and that's the basic question of life. Now, we hide that basic question many times by all the mundane things that occupy us. But the question never really goes away because it goes to the essence of life and to the essence of being a human being. And therefore, uh, the Jewish people, so to speak, become special from the beginning because it's a whole people. It's not just one person. It's not just Abraham and it's not just Isaac, and it's not just Jacob and his family. All of a sudden we're talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that have a different viewpoint. Now, the Egyptians view this as a threat to them because the entire uh, dynasty of the pharaohs, the entire structure of Egyptian society is built upon paganism. And here uh, in their midst is a large group of people who uh, have a different view. And not only have a different view, uh, seemingly are able to propagate it. And therefore, the first instance of uh, organized anti-Semitism, if we can use that phrase, and I just did, is uh, the Jews. People are enslaved in Egypt. <laughs> Enslavement was meant not only to uh, uh, subjugate the Jewish people 
It was meant not only to exploit the Jewish people to build Pithom and Ramses, but it was also meant to destroy the Jewish people and to destroy them morally, spiritually, physically, and therefore uh, their children were to be cast into the Nile River, their women were to be violated. There was supposed to be nothing left from that. And we're talking about a period of time of centuries, uh, whether uh, we take the count of 210 years of Egyptian slavery, which uh, Jewish tradition adopts, or if we take the scriptures literally, and it's hundreds of years more, but it's a long period of time. And somehow in this long period of time of enforced anti-Semitism, the Jewish people do not disappear. One of the great ironies that I think uh, will be pointed out in this series of lectures is that when the Torah says, that the more they tried to destroy us, the more the Jewish people were stubborn and were able to survive. To me, there, for instance, is no question that if the Soviet Union would not have been so anti-Semitic and treated its Jews so miserably and with such discrimination, the Jews of Russia would have disappeared. They would have assimilated and disappeared, as hundreds of thousands did. But simply because of the fact that on the identity card in the Soviet Union it said Yevrei, it said that you were Jewish, that's what preserved the Jewish people. And that many times we will see uh, in this series of lectures, I hope, that the behavior of the anti-Semite becomes the guarantor of a Jewish success and survival. So, in any event, uh, we're approaching now the great holiday of Pesach. The Jewish people are miraculously redeemed. They are taken forth from Egypt. On the way out of Egypt, they are attacked by a tribe called Amalek. Why does Amalek attack them? Well, the simple reason is that he's afraid that they're going to occupy his territory going to somehow uh, overcome uh, what he feels uh, to be his rights. However, there's a deeper uh, understanding here, because all of a sudden Amalek realizes that this is a people that represents an idea, and that idea is going to destroy uh, the underpinnings of that ancient world. Uh, without paganism, the ancient world cannot exist. And therefore they make war, and the war ends in a draw. Uh, the Jewish people continue. Amalek uh, remains uh, for generations and generations, centuries and centuries, an enemy of the Jewish people. Now the Jewish people become a nation, and a nation acquires territory, a state. They come to the land of Israel, and we read in the Tanakh, Yoshua, Shoftim, etc. And there are countless wars. But those wars are not necessarily wars of anti-Semitism. Those are national wars, borders, uh, booty, wealth. Uh, it's not, a, uh, not ideological wars. In fact, we see that uh, in the response that Yiftoch gives to uh, the emissaries of uh, the king uh, who uh, he is fighting. So he says, the Moab, he says, uh, your God, Kamosh, gave you this land. Our God, so to speak, Hashem, gave us our land, so live and let live. Now the rabbis uh, naturally criticize him for equating the two, but it defines for us the fact that this is not an anti-Semitic war. It's a national war. 
It's, uh, you know, England and France. It's uh, a war of uh, borders. Where, uh, where should we draw the line? Where does the land, to whom does the land belong? So in Tanakh, we see this over and over again. The Philistines, the Plishtim, uh, the, all the other tribes. There's a constant struggle here. But the struggle is not anti-Semitism per se. The struggle is national interests and uh, borders and money and the usual things that unfortunately human beings fight about that in the long run of history make very little difference. It all changes when, because of the fact that paganism infiltrates the Jewish people itself. And during the time of the first temple, uh, Jewish faith is weakened. And we read these uh, words in the prophets, uh, Yeshayahu, Yirmiyo, uh, Micha, all, all of the uh, uh, sources of the decline of the Jewish people during first temple times. So now we embark on a new uh, era, the era of exile. The Jewish people are thrown outside of their land. There's no national, no nation uh, state anymore. It's not a question of borders, not a question of uh, possessions, not a question of power. The Jewish people don't have any of that anymore. So then why should there be anti-Semitism? So now we come to the story that we just read of Purim. It's uh, 52 years after the destruction of the temple. Uh, the Babylonian Empire has been replaced by the Persian Empire. The Jews are living scattered throughout the Persian Empire. In the Megillah, we read that there are 127 different geographical areas under the control of the Persians. And apparently there are Jews all over certainly all over the Middle East and the Mediterranean Basin, as far as India and uh, Ethiopia and uh, the, what was then the outer reaches of uh, the human civilization as was known to the people at that time. Jewish people were made a different people, though. They retained their ideas of monotheism. Again, a very pagan world. Now, it's different gods that were... The Canaanite gods are gone. The Assyrian gods are gone. Now we have the Persian gods. So uh, paganism morphs from one generation to the other. It's, so to speak, current political correctness. Uh, we're, we're, those gods are, don't exist anymore, but we've got new gods to replace it. But uh, there is a core of the Jewish people, not the whole Jewish people, but a core of the Jewish people that remains loyal to its tenets and to its faith. And that's really represented by Mordechai and Esther, the heroes of the Purim story. Now here we enter for the first time into a purely anti-Semitic persecution. But there's a reason for it. There's a cause. The Megillah tells us and the cause is a sense that the Jewish people are not really loyal. A sense that the Jewish people somehow do not subscribe to the society of the Persians. Uh, certainly are not willing to give respect to uh, these uh, ideas of... Uh, paganism, they, the Jewish people want to do what they want to do. And that's what Homan says, uh, they have a different, uh, it's not that their religion is different, they are different. And therefore, they do not do what the king wants them to do because they're too independent. And that's one of the basic accusations against the Jewish people throughout all the ages, 
is that we're too independent. We don't listen. Uh, we don't even listen to our own, so certainly we're not going to listen to others. So why should we, you know, why should we tolerate them? Because they are a disloyal element in society. Not disloyal because the way the Egyptians said that if there's a war, they'll fight for our enemies. It doesn't mean that. They are disloyal in the sense that they don't accept the, uh, the general culture. They don't accept what uh, is being imposed upon them. They don't accept all of that. They are, you know, they're doing their own thing. They don't listen to, you know, uh, who cares what Netanyahu says, which is a perfectly Jewish trait that oftentimes uh, is injurious to us. So Homun, because of personal reasons, because he is furious that Mordechai won't bow to him, so many times anti-Semitism is based on one personal incident. How a person is treated in a store. How a Jew somehow didn't behave correctly towards him. Or it is based on broader ideas. On a general world view. And on the general world view, Oman is able to capitalize his own personal insult and make it a general policy. And then there's avarice. There's the fact that uh, there's a lot of money to be made. There's a a lot of profit to be made. I mean, we have... uh, It is estimated that all the reparations that were paid uh, by Germany uh, still don't... uh, still are loaded with uh, orcs of art uh, stolen from the Jews. So, you, you know, there's a lot of money to be made. A lot of profit that could be had. The Germans made it a, uh, an efficient and scientific method. You know, they gold teeth, shoes, hair. There's no, uh, there's no limit to the amount of money that can be made from the destruction of the Jews. So that's what Homan wants. That's pure anti-Semitism already. And uh, we are saved in the miracle of Purim. But this virus is going to mutate. It's going to appear again in the ancient world in different forms, different people, different circumstances. So we have, for instance, the story of Hanukkah. The Jewish people return. They rebuild the temple. The Greeks come. Now, the Greeks are a different uh, breed completely. They are not barbarians. Uh, They are sophisticated. Their architecture and art and music and drama, uh, beautiful language, prose, philosophers, they have a broad view of the world. But they're pagan. Now, the Greeks are elitists. And one of the problems with the elitists, as we know in our time as well, is that elitists not only know better, they want to insist that you do what they say because they know better. And this is the source why they want to Hellenize the Jewish people because they see that the Jewish people are not Greek. And in the Jewish school, they see uh, Aristotle, they're interested in the Bible and all sorts of other things. And uh, the Greeks feel that they understand the Jews and that they can force the Jews through installing uh, Greek gods in the temple to become Greek. So this is a different form of anti-Semitism. This is not anti-Semitism to destroy physically the Jewish people. It's an anti-Semitism to make the Jewish people Greek. 
an anti-Semitism to change the Jewish people. And uh, they find willing allies amongst the Jewish people, as they always will. There are many Hellenists among the Jewish people who uh, are determined also to become Greek. And because of that, therefore, there is here a struggle and a minority of the Jewish people, led by Matityahu and his sons, the Hashmanoim, rebel. Uh, there are years of war, strife. But finally, the Hellenists are defeated. The Greeks are forced out of Jerusalem. And that form of anti-Semitism uh, has, for the moment, been laid to rest. However, hard upon that come the Romans. Now, whatever Greece was, Rome was more so. And the Romans uh, were... Uh, for five centuries, they ruled the world. Five centuries, that's a long time. If you were born in the middle, let's say you were born 250 years into the Roman Empire, you would be convinced that the Roman Empire would live forever. It never would fall. But all of history teaches us that nothing is forever. And that uh, even though we are always told that the experts can predict the future, uh, we, <laughs> we are living witness to the fact that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But in any event, Rome is there. And uh, Rome is all-powerful. Now, Rome destroys the Jewish state. Again, not so much out of religious reasons or even out of anti-Semitism as out of the fact that the Jews are rebellious people, they do not accept Roman rule, they want to be independent, uh, and uh, therefore the Romans uh, brutally uh, put down the rebellion, burn the temple, and the long exile of the Jewish people begins. Now, in the Roman Empire, there are a number, there are a number of centers of Jewish life in the ancient world. One is in Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria is a city built by Alexander the Great, named for him. It has an enormously large Jewish population. The Talmud and the, uh, the Brothos teaches us that the, the great synagogue in Alexandria was so large that in order to know when the Chazan finished the Brocha and one the audience should answer Amen, they had to raise flags to indicate to the assembled worshippers that it's time to say Amen. Now, you had magnificent structures, great wealth, and Alexandria was a cosmopolitan city. It was a city of Greeks, of Romans, of Egyptians, and of Jews. It was, uh, well, to put it... Uh, more crudely, let's say it was like the New York City of our time. It had a definite Jewish flavor to it, but the Jews were not the majority. But the Jews had great influence in the city. And uh, the Jews were uh, merchants, uh, successful people. Uh, they built themselves up. And when they built themselves up, they built Alexandria and uh, to a great extent, therefore, uh, you know, there used to be a sign in the New York subway that you don't have to be Jewish to enjoy Levy's rye bread. Uh, you don't have to be Jewish to enjoy Alexandria, but without the Jews, Alexandria would not have been Alexandria. And the Jews produced uh, all sorts of great people there. Uh, the great philosopher Philo, uh, was from Alexandria, and uh, all sorts of uh, Jewish influence existed. Now, in Alexandria, because of this Jewish influence, uh, there was a kickback. Uh, there were those that resented it, uh, those who viewed uh, that Jews built wealthy homes, 
and that they were living in hovels. Uh, that always uh, the have-nots always uh, have uh, negative feelings towards the haves. It's not that all the Jews were wealthy. There were Jews that lived in hovels also. But that's not how the Jewish population was portrayed. It was portrayed as being sophisticated. It was portrayed as so as being more Greek than the Greeks, more Roman than the Romans, and more modern than anything else. And therefore, uh, there arose a very strong anti-Semitism in Alexandria. It was led by a Greek by the name of Appion. Appion wrote a treatise, uh, anti-Semitic creed, screed uh, against uh, every every calumny that's ever been uh, laid at the doorstep of the Jewish people was included in Appion's words. Whatever, they're cheaters, they're swindlers, and money. Uh, can't be trusted, they're disloyal, they're debauchers, uh, you name it, it's all in there. It's uh, Julius Streicher in the uh, 3rd century, and uh, because, uh, before uh, the, the common era, and because of that, uh, anti-Semitism was rife in the air. It was so rife that uh, there was a Jew by the name of Josephus Flavius, Joseph ben Monticello Cohen, who originally was a general in the Jewish army fighting against the Romans. In the middle of the war, he switched sides, and he became an advisor to the Roman generals, and uh, he wrote a number of uh, famous works. One... Uh, the Antiquities of the Jews, which is a history of the Jewish people till his time, and then he wrote The Wars of the Jews, which was an account of the war against Rome. But he wrote a book called Contra Appian, against Appian. And that was a spirited defense of the Jewish people against the accusations of, Ap of Appian and of the anti-Semites of his time. So here for the first time, we have this uh, strong debate between the, the official anti-Semites, let us say, and Jews who rose to it against those accusations. And uh, both books resonated. I think that uh, even though Josephus is known for his other two books, his book, Contra Appian, really is the most Jewish of all of his works. So Alexandria was one center of this. Eventually, Alexandria would be destroyed, and the Jewish population there would be destroyed as well. In a uh, resurgence of uh, violent anti-Semitism that was encouraged, uh, by the zeitgeist of the time. That was the second center in the Roman Empire of the Jewish people, and that was Rome itself. There a large Jewish contingent in Rome that also were very successful people. The Gemara quotes that there was someone called Totus Arofe, Thaddeus the doctor, the physician. He's quoted in the Talmud, the Mishnah, a few times. And uh, he even uh, attempted to initiate the uh, Corbin Pesach, the bringing of the Paschal Lamb, uh, in Rome. And uh, the rabbis uh, naturally disapproved because it was outside the temple and such thing could not be done. But they said, If it weren't that you were the great Todas, we would... Uh, we would excommunicate you. We would take steps against you. But we're not doing anything because you are the great Jew in Rome. Now, uh, in Rome, there was a large Jewish community of freed slaves that were ransomed by other Jews. 
with a great, strong Jewish community in Rome. And they blended into Roman society, but they remained uh, they remained uh, Jewish and they remained traditional. And we have until today that the Italian Jews in Rome have their own uh, form of prayer, Nusach uh, Romi, which is different than the Svardim or the Ashkenazim, etc., even though its main uh, uh, pieces uh, conform to those that are mentioned in the Talmud. So Rome was also a great center of Jewish life. Now, all of this uh, in the uh, ancient world uh, gave rise to anti-Jewish feeling. Because, again, uh, things happen in the world. When things happen, you need to be able, or you felt that you had to be able to blame it on someone, on something. And the Jews were always outstanding, different. We're always looking for the different people. We don't appreciate that it's the different people that push civilization ahead. It's the nonconformist. It's the non-elitist. But uh, the nonconformist, the non-elitist, is the one that is always subjected uh, to criticism, to even persecution. Uh, is not given over to uh, a pleasant way of life. Now, it is in this period of time that the uh, Talmud is completed, the Jerusalem Talmud uh, and the Babylonian Talmud, and basically the structure of Jewish life for the next millennia is put into place. Uh, We can say today, uh, I think... uh, very clearly that uh, we live a Talmudic form of life. The people of the Talmud, if they came back to watch us and visit us, uh, they would recognize us. Uh, We would recognize them because of the fact that uh, we are so influenced by the Talmud. It has become uh, the basic book of the Jewish people. There's a famous idea that Rabbi Samson Rayfield Hirsch uh, propounds. It's a very radical idea. Hirsch himself was a radical. Yeah, today he's been, uh, uh, I don't know how to put it, uh, his radicalism has is, uh, not been noted. Let's put it that way. But he uh, was once asked uh, what is the difference between the oral law, the Torah Shabalpeh, and the written law, the Torah Shabiksaf? Because we find many times contradictions between the two. In the Torah, it's regarding certain uh, sins that are committed, most you must, uh, the person should uh, die, should be executed. In the Talmud, uh, takes that and says, no, Mumon. No, he only has to pay money. doesn't mean that he should physically be executed. Yeah, but it said, uh, the, 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 <laughs> it says in the book, most you must. So how did the Talmud uh, take it upon itself to uh, somehow uh, not amend the script, but to reinterpret it in such a way so that its literal meaning no longer pertains. So Hirsch says, really a a, a profound idea. He says, uh, if a student attends a lecture by a great professor and the student takes notes on the lecture, someone coming later and looking at the notes of that student will not understand what those notes really mean because he did not hear the lecture. So the Hirsch says the Torah Shabiksav, the written Torah that we have, those are the notes that the student took. 
The Torah Shabal Peh is the lecture itself. That's what Moshe heard on Sinai. Moshe heard the lecture. And therefore, if you know what the lecture said, you understand how to read the notes. But if you don't know the lecture, then reading the notes will give you a false impression. So the creation of the Talmud is the taking of the lecture and making it available to all of the Jewish people over all of the centuries. And that constitutes the basis of Jewish society and of Jewish life until today. Because of that, therefore, uh, the Jewish people were able to create a world unto themselves, a Talmudic world that really lived outside and had no connection with the Roman world in which they physically existed. And that became true throughout the ages, that the Jews always lived, so to speak, in their own bubble. They lived in their own world. And in their own world, what went on on the outside, even though it affected them, was not really as essential to them as the world in which they live, which was this world of the Talmud. And the nations of the world, the non-Jewish world, noticed that. Uh, They noticed that somehow this is a very strange people. They are part of our world. In fact, they're very much engaged in it, commercially, intellectually, uh, in the uh, Persian Empire, and later in the Muslim Empire, Jews rose to great diplomatic and the governmental positions. There were Jewish generals, uh, Jewish prime ministers, etc., but all of those people are not living in our world, the nations of the world realized. They're living in their own world. Now, that requires a great deal of tolerance. You have to be able to tolerate these kind of people. You know, uh, uh, Albert Einstein was a postal clerk customs duty, whatever, he was a clerk. But he was sat and he was thinking always about physics and the light beams and the energy and everything. So, uh, you know, uh, if you're his boss at the post office or at the customs office, how can you, how do you deal with something like that? That he's, you know, he's a wolfmensch. He's, he's, uh, he's in the air somewhere. But he's not doing his job. But that's the genius. The genius amongst us are always not doing their job. They're thinking. Uh, They are uh, exploring. They're imagining. And that was the Jewish genius throughout the ages. Is that when the rest of the world was doing their job, the Jewish people were thinking. Now, many times what they were thinking was dead wrong and didn't always bring benefit, but many times it did bring benefit. But it's a trait. It's a national trait within the Jewish people. Well, you have to be able to tolerate that. Anybody who is a teacher in a classroom knows that there are one or two students there in front of that teacher in the classroom that their minds are somewhere else. Now, that can be very frustrating for the teacher. I'm trying to teach you facts, and, you know, and you're dreaming about something. How does the teacher react to that? So some teachers will give you an F and throw you out of the classroom. Other teachers may tolerate you, and the rare teacher will encourage you. And out of that encouragement will come someone who is special. Uh, Usually, uh, 
that person also has a touch of mischief in him or her because of the fact that it's uh, not a goody-goody. You have to be able to tolerate that as well. And it's nothing else. The Jewish people were and are a mischievous people. And because of all of this, there naturally arose a resentment towards the Jewish people. But this resentment was not religious. It was not based upon the Jewish religion, per se. It was based upon the Jewish worldview, a Jewish worldview that did not allow for paganism, a Jewish worldview that allowed for personal independence, uh, that allowed for a great deal of personal creativity, and that was a Talmudic way of life. And this takes us to about the fourth century of the Common Era, until Christianity really takes hold and uh, controls the Western and Eastern world and becomes the successor to the Roman Empire. Now, as long as, it's, it's ironic, but as long as paganism survives, uh, the intensity of anti-Semitism, with exceptions naturally, like Alexandria, and other uh, instances that I mentioned, uh, the intensity of anti-Semitism was, to a certain extent, muted. It wasn't uh, violent in many respects, though uh, there were times, such as the Purim story, when great physical danger to the Jews existed. But it was a different form of anti-Semitism. It was not a religious anti-Semitism. And uh, somehow uh, one was able to deal with that. Uh, the Jews uh, uh, accommodated themselves to it. They knew that it was there. They knew they were not going to change the world. But they uh, worked around it. Uh, one of the main ideas... Uh, was regarding the Sabbath, uh, one day a week of arrest, which was a Jewish idea, exclusive Jewish idea. Uh, this, uh, the world thought that uh, somehow that was a sign of Jewish laziness. There was something called Shehi Pehi, Shehi, Shabbos Hayom, Pehi, Pesach Hayom. You told a Jew to do something, he said, today's Shabbos, I can't do it. You told him to do something, he said, today's Pesach, I can't do it. So that became an expression of the world thought that the Jews were shirkers, that they were not industrious. Well, in fact, the Jews were always an industrious and creative people, always doing something. But these stereotypes were created, and stereotypes last. And they last throughout centuries. And the stereotype of Jews who are lazy, uh, who are indolent, who don't uh, necessarily uh, uh, work hard, so to speak, that was a stereotype that uh, existed until our time. I remember that uh, when I first uh, graduated law school and I uh, was looking for a job as a law clerk, uh, many uh, uh, interviews that I had were failures because I told them that I could not be available from Friday sundown till Saturday sundown. I told them Sunday I'd be up at work. And they said to me, uh, you know, if you want to be a successful lawyer, it's uh, 24-7. you got to always be available. And uh, someone once told me, said, uh, you know, that's the trouble with you people. You're lazy. And that's really what the Pharaoh said to Moshe. Nirpimatim, nirpimatim, you're lazy. 
You want a day off. So uh, all of these things that are built into Jewish life and which later became built into the general society and in our time is being eroded again when everything is 24-7. It's very interesting. I see uh, in the the, uh, current crisis, uh, stores are closed. Everything is closed. How about it be closed? You're supposed to be open 24-7. Can't exist without things being open 24-7. And all of a sudden we're being shown because it doesn't have to be that way. That someone will have to make do with it not being open. But these were all issues that existed in the ancient world and contributed to the uh, anti-Jewish feelings but the anti-Jewish feelings, again, with a few exceptions, there were exceptions of pogroms in Alexandria, there were exceptions of pogroms in other cities in the Near East, but basically speaking, the classical anti-Semitism of the ancient world was not violent. And it was not really that much religious as it was against the way of life, against the world view against the ideas the Jews presented. And that was really the uh, basis for the contention. I think because of that, uh, you could have uh, great uh, Jewish scholars, such as Rambam and others, who adopted Greek uh, philosophical ideas and philosophical methods and did not feel that somehow these contradicted uh, uh, Jewish values but were rather were valuable tools in understanding Judaism and God's world because of the fact that the line was not drawn in blood the line was not drawn in violence but it was uh, much more subtle Uh, it was much more uh, vague and in such a world So uh, the Bible could be translated into a Greek translation. And uh, the Septuagint was done by Jewish scholars. And from the Talmud it appears that it had uh, miraculous heavenly help in order to be able to accomplish it. And uh, therefore uh, uh, the classical ancient... uh, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitism was of a different form than what would now come in the next lecture that I'm going to give, God willing, which is about uh, the Christian and Muslim era, where now the anti-Semitism becomes one of religion, becomes one of absolute uh, belief and faith becomes one of intolerance that's a whole different ball game so I want to thank you all for listening and I want to wish you all good health and together God willing we will see ourselves through this crisis and we'll be able to hear good news one from another thank you for listening and be well cold to Selah.